Alrighty, well, we'll just, uh, we're going to look at Luke 17 tonight is where we're at, because we're done with Mark. I'm a little free to move around here. So we're going to look at Luke 17, in verses 20 to 37 to the end of the chapter. So let's pray. Father, we just ask you, Lord, just thank you that you're here with us and you have us here gathered to hear your word. Ask you'll speak clearly to us and encourage us, warn us, admonish us, and uh, just cause us to be faithful with you, to you, Lord. And we know that you're with us and you'll bring us through to the end. And we thank you for your faithfulness to do that in Jesus' name. All righty, so we're down here in Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. It says, Now when he, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here. Or look there, do not go after them or follow them, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the fields, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So I've titled the message, The King is Coming, Remember Lot's Wife. (laughs) So anyways, you know, in the course of human history, there's been a lot of disasters that men didn't have any time to get ready for. They just came on top of them suddenly and unexpected. You know, in 2012, Harrisburg, Illinois, they had a tornado. It had winds that were packing winds of 175 miles an hour. The tornado hit at 4.50 a.m. Most people would have been asleep. The weather observers only gave people 13 minutes of warning. So it was sudden, it was without warning, and few people heard the warning. And so there's a lot of damage done, lives lost. I don't know, the Boston Marathon, I don't know if you remember, it's coming up in a few weeks. So it's held the third Monday in April on Patriots Day, right? 2013, two-thirds of the racers had crossed the finish line. Suddenly, two bombs went off. There was a big crowd right there at the finish line cheering everybody that came in. And they had two bombs that went off and a crowd of people that were watching. And here's the thing. It was a sunny day. Everybody was happy. And nobody was prepared for or expecting an explosion at that time. But it happened that quick, if you remember seeing it on the news. One bomb went off, and 13 seconds later, 
the second bomb went off. So that race had been run 117 times up to that point, and they'd never had anything close to any problem like that happening. So no one was expecting or prepared for what happened, were they? I mean, they weren't. Uh, But there's a lot of things, and I could go on and give examples. There's a lot of things that happen in life that are unexpected and we can't be prepared for. But there is one thing that we just read about that we know about, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be ready for because he warns us to be ready many times in Scripture. So just to give a few, Matthew 24, you don't have to turn to it, but Jesus said this, Know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, he says, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so when the five virgins, Mr. Rudy likes to talk about, he doesn't want to be number six, but the five virgins, when they had not made preparation to buy oil and they're knocking on the door and they're crying out, Lord, Lord, open unto us. What did he say? His answer to them was, assuredly, I say unto you, I do not know you. So the preparation there was they, they didn't know the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They had his name. They, they looked just like the other ones. But at the end of that parable in Matthew 25, Jesus went on to say to us, after giving that parable, he says to us, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In other words, don't be foolish. He's saying be ready because all ten in here, we all basically outwardly, in a sense, look the same, don't we? And they all outwardly look the same. But that wasn't the case, was it? Luke 21, he says this, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And Jesus said, Watch Therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I mean, that's a pretty clear warning, isn't it? He's saying, take heed that you don't be all caught up into this world, the things of this world, the cares of this life, and that it comes on in you unexpectedly. So the first two things I talked about, it came on him unexpectedly. He's saying, it shouldn't happen to us, should it? And that's what Paul says. He had those warnings all through his epistles, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, he said this, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and it says, And they shall not escape." But you, brethren, Paul says, and he's speaking to us, he's saying that shouldn't happen to us. He's saying you're not in darkness so that that day should overtake you as a thief. He said you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So it's 
you know, okay, you all understand the warning passages are not to make you insecure, not to condemn you. That's not the idea. It's just like if you're driving around a mountain and there's a guardrail there which says, you know, stay away. I'm saying that's not to make you panic and like see how close you can get to it. It's just it's to keep you away from it, isn't it? Now, if you're going to ignore that and try to get as close as you can or just, you know, drive right over like some people did out in California. Well, guess what? Then it does apply to you danger stay you know stay away from it but the warnings here are given so that that won't happen to us not to make us insecure that's why they're given right so we've been talking a lot about the kingdom of god in the last few weeks and we're going to talk about it some more tonight so as i've said this is just kind of be a reminder because i don't know how much of this is really in our thinking but you know if you ask some if i ask you all what is a major part of jesus's teaching you should start to be understanding the kingdom of god was a major part of his teaching it's all through the Gospels. It's actually all through the entire New Testament. It was, as we show, I'm not going to go through all this, but just briefly, I mean, it was the Gospel that he preached, isn't it? Gospel of the Kingdom. And he said to Nicodemus, to be converted means when that happens, you enter the Kingdom. And we, we quoted that scripture in Colossians where it says you're translated from one kingdom to another, that that literally happens. Jesus, when giving these parables and describing the kingdom of God in Matthew 13, he said the good seed, who we are, are the sons of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom. And at the end of time, what's he going to do? 1 Corinthians 15, it says he's going to deliver up the kingdom to his father. And that's are in eternity, right? And what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to? How does he tell us that we're to be conducting ourselves in our daily lives? What does he say to do? Matthew 6, 33. We're supposed to be seeking first what? The kingdom of God. Setting our affections like we talked about in Colossians. Setting our affections on things above. That's the way we're supposed to be living. I'm saying the kingdom of God is a big deal. And we need to get our minds set that way, that there's a kingdom around us that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And we are part of another kingdom, and we should not be getting caught up in this kingdom that surrounds us with all its influences, not getting into all that. But the two themes of these verses that we have here are, number one, the coming kingdom, and then it, we're going to talk about the coming king. That's what is being talked about here, the two themes of what we just looked at. And so the Pharisees, to begin with, in verses 20 and 21, talking about the coming kingdom, they asked a question in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, the question they ask him is, when would the kingdom of God come? When is it going to come? And when he answered them, he really answered them in three ways. He told them, what is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? And when will the kingdom come? That's what all he said. So first... What is the kingdom? And so we know that the Pharisees, the Jews, the disciples, almost every Israelite, if not all of them, they all believed the king, the kingdom would be an earthly material kingdom, one that had a territory, armies, and earthly power, and a kingdom. They're looking for a kingdom. This is like the news of the day for them. This is their big expectation. They're looking for a kingdom that's going to come and conquer, set them up. So Pilate... Even he understood that. When he asked Jesus, when he came before him and he's questioning him, what did he ask Jesus? He says, are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus gives him this answer. He says, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. He says, but now my kingdom is not from here. 
And I mean, you put yourself in Pilate's shoes. He's got to be thinking to himself with this kind of an answer. I have never heard of a king or a kingdom like that. And so the next thing he asked him is, are you, are, what are you telling me? Are you a king then? Are you a king then? Because he's like, how can you be a king? If your kingdom's not of this world, there's nothing about it. And you know, I'm like, I've never heard of a kingdom. He's saying with no land, no armies. And Jesus told him, my kingdom is built on truth. And Pilate had to be like, yeah, how many battles does that win? And he's like, what is truth? <laughs> so this kingdom that we're part of is not part of what we think of when you typically think of a kingdom is kind of the point. So he's answering the Pharisees here. When they asked that question, he answered to them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observations. So he's telling them, look, fellas, it's not what you're looking for. This kingdom that I'm bringing in here is not one of worldly pomp, splendor, and great armies. Because here's the way the kingdom of God has come on this earth and still does. It comes quietly, right? Only those that are spiritually minded can see it. And he tells us that in several of the parables that describe it. In Mark 4, he says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, and he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. And he goes on to say, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall I picture it? And he said, It's like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs. So it's just the opposite of what they were expecting. Kingdoms would rise up and just, they'd be huge, they'd take over, their armies would conquer. And he's saying, this kingdom of God that I'm describing to you, it's this microscopic, that's about how small that mustard seed was. And it's planted, and it starts growing, and no one knows how. Because it's not, i got all this pomp and splendor like other kings. But he's saying in the end, that thing is huge. And that plant it talks about, the mulberry bush, that thing had roots that went out forever. That thing was like impossible to get out. (laughs) So this unmovable bush. So the kingdom of God, though, according to the Bible, it's present where? Where is it present? It's wherever God is ruling and reigning sovereignly over the lives and hearts of people. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be power demonstrated because I'm saying it will. And we're going to see it here. But it's not going to be the power that would fit in this fleshly mindset of the Pharisees. And I'm saying they were already seeing it happen. They were already seeing the power of God and the kingdom of God demonstrated. But they were blinded to it and they couldn't see it. So these kingdoms that we have now in this world, they're under the control and dominion of Satan. Aren't they? We all know that. And by submitting the power, people in the world, they submit their lives to the power and the dominion of Satan and the kingdoms of this world. So it's only those that hear the gospel, hear the good news, receive it and believe it. And by faith, enter this kingdom of God that thus we become at that point. We don't look any different outwardly. Our names don't change. I mean, we still look the same, but we at that point become pilgrims and sojourners on this earth. And then we are seeking and praying. We're part of a kingdom and we're praying for that kingdom to come. And the desire to be delivered of this one that's here. 
So this kingdom, it's here and now. How do people enter and experience it? It's like I said, by submitting to the sovereign rule of God's king, Jesus, over their lives. It's bowing to the lordship of Jesus, seeking first his kingdom, his rule, his will, his reign. We're living to please him, his undisputed lordship in our daily lives. That is how we become part of this kingdom. And the second thing he answers in is, where is the kingdom? Because they're asking, when is it going to come? And you've got to be thinking, where is it? And he clears up any misunderstanding they might have had. He says, look, it's not in some specific place that you're going to be able to go and find. It's not some place you can say, this is what he's telling them in that verse 21. Look what he says. It's not going to come with observation. It's not something you're going to see like what you think a normal kingdom would be. He says, nor will they say, see here or see there. For he says, indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So he's saying, it's not something you're going to go see and find and be a part of. It's not a specific territory. So he's saying the kingdom of God is not like what we currently have today. For instance, the kingdom, it's called the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You could actually go and visit that kingdom. It has a territory, 830,000 square miles. There are people that live in that kingdom that you can visibly see. 33 million people live there, and it's ruled by an absolute monarch. And that is, unlike what he's saying, the kingdom of God's not this way, but that's a kingdom that you can go and see. And he's saying, the Pharisees, the kingdom of God's not like that. He's saying, look, it is, now in the King James, it's saying it is within you. But here's the thing. Do, you really, do we really think he's telling these unsaved, unregenerate Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within them? Do we really think that? Because almost all translations render that verse this way. It will say the kingdom of God is in the midst of you because that word within you can also be among you or within your midst. So it's already among you, it's in your midst, and I think that really fits the context and makes more sense of what he's saying. And even Matthew Henry from clear back in the 1600s says, you inquire, he's saying to the Pharisees, you inquire when it will come and are not aware that it has already begun to be set up in the midst of you. The gospel's preached, it's confirmed by miracles, and it is embraced by multitudes. He's saying, they're asking, when is it going to come? Where is he saying? It's right here in your nation. It's already started. So he's telling them it's a present reality because I'm the king and the kingdom has come and I'm beginning my reign. Just not the way you think is what he's telling them. It's not the way always that we think. So he told them clear back in chapter 11 when they accused him of operating by the powers of darkness and the power of Satan. He says, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely, he said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's saying my presence, my authority, and my power, through that, in my presence here, my power, my authority, what's being demonstrated, the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. He's like, you don't need any other signs. They were always seeking for signs because he's saying the miracles I've performed are the only sign you need to see the kingdom of God has come. He's saying, your problem, he told them, is you don't know how to read signs. You don't know how to read the signs of the time. And that's sometimes I think it's the issue with us sometimes, right? We need to understand the kingdom has come. It has never left. And he's still here. And he's still here in our midst. And he'll still do the same things. That's what he says. Now, here's the thing. So. 
just to, just to clarify, the church, though, is not the kingdom. The Catholic Church equates its church with the kingdom. And they're politically motivated and everything else. But the church, in the, the church is not the kingdom. But I'm saying they are, though, closely related. Because the church is to be made up of those, the people in here that are claimed to be members of this church, are those that have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of his dear son, or the kingdom of God, right? The called out ones. The, the ones in here, we should be coming in here. Our church, this church, all of us individually, when we're not gathering together, but even when we are gathered together, this assembly should be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, shouldn't it? And that's what we should. And if that's the case, then we should see his presence manifested in all kinds of ways. Right. If that's what we are as a church. And that should help us to bring an expectation in here, I think. Don't you? It really is. And so we're gathered, we gather here under the Lordship of Christ to hear His voice speaking through His Word, through each other, when we read Scriptures, when we pray, to hear His voice, to obey His Word. And also, we're gathered together here to demonstrate the benefits of the kingdom. Healing, deliverance, love, unity, peace, and I could go on and on. That should be part of what it means when we're gathered together as the church. So we're not the kingdom, we're an outpost of the kingdom, an embassy of the kingdom. We're a light of the kingdom to the world. And on and on. Does that make sense? (laughs) So here's the reason the church is not the kingdom. For one thing, we're not all the people, are we here? We're not all the people of the kingdom. But one day also, even within every group, there is going to be a separation that takes place. So in the church, there are tares and wheat children of the devil and the children of God. And we don't know always who they are, do we? Some things can make it evident. But he said in another parable of the kingdom, Jesus said that it's like a man that has arranged a marriage for his son. And at the great wedding feast, there's one present there, an apparent member of the kingdom. And he looks over at him and he's like, where's your wedding garment? And what does it say about this one? He was speechless. Somehow he got in there, seemed like he was a part of the kingdom, but he wasn't. Probably a church member, probably a faithful church member. I don't know. But it said he was speechless. And the, the king is like, you take him out, bind him hand and foot, and put him in outer darkness. Now, that's pretty severe. So my point is, hey, there's going to be a separation that comes one day, isn't there? So just because you're part of the church doesn't mean you're part of the kingdom. But as Paul would say, I believe better things of you, brethren. (laughs) That's what he says. That's what I believe it, right? So Jesus is teaching here, the kingdom of God is anywhere a person or a group of people have, I'm saying this probably for the fourth time, but it's what it is, have submitted to his rule and reign and they receive the benefits of the kingdom. So the third question they ask him, this question actually asked him, when will the kingdom be established? And so we've talked about this before. It was established and began when Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah, as the King. And so when you or I, though, when any of us or anyone bows the knee to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, in that sense, the kingdom of God begins for them then and it never ends. Once you're in, he doesn't take you in and out. You may think you're in and he'll in a sense, take you out. But once you're in or you've entered in and you've been born again, he doesn't unborn again you. Amen. We don't have to be all insecure about that, right? 
So there's this already but not yet aspect to the kingdom. And we're looking, to the, looking forward to the not yet aspect of it. So where we're at right now. But it's what he goes on to tell us here in the rest of these verses is that not yet, that coming of the kingdom, that full realization, it's going to be linked to the coming of the king. And that's what's going to happen. So in, that, in these next few verses, 22 to 37, there's two aspects to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to see. So this is not going to be exactly what I've said before. But the first thing we need to say is his rejection. And the second thing is his revealing. And there's two key verses that show that for his rejection in verse 25. Look what it says. It says, but first, he's saying he's going to come back like lightning. But verse 25 says, but first he, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And that's talking about his rejection. And the second is in verse 30. And it says there that even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. His revelation, he's going to be revealed in his full glory. So here's what we need to see about his rejection. And that is this. He talks about his rejection, but what we need to see is it doesn't stop with him. In other words, his rejection doesn't stop at the cross. The rejection of him and who he is continues all the way until... The cross is here. His return is here. Their rejection takes place all the way until he returns. That's what he's telling his disciples. Look in verse 22. He says, so this is why he's saying this. He said in verse 22 to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. He says, don't go after or follow them. So he's telling his disciples, well, what's he telling them then? He's telling them that things are going to get so bad that you are going to long for me to be physically present with you. So it could be taken either way. Nobody knows for sure. I don't know for sure. He's saying it's going to be so bad for you, you're going to long for one of those days when I'm, I was here like I was when I walked the earth. Or it could be you're longing for the time I'm going to come back and set everything right in my full glory and majesty. It doesn't matter either way. He's saying you're going to be longing with that, longing for that. He's saying, but it's not going to happen. You see where he says that? He says, you, verse 20, uh, 22, the days will come. You'll desire. It's going to be bad to see one of the days of the Son of Man. But look what he says. And you will not see it. And so what he's saying, when that happens, there is going to be a temptation to follow one of these seducers that tell you there is a place where you can find me. Or there is a man, these people take his place and act like they're fully representing him. False Christ that come in his name. False prophets and false teachers. They speak in his name. Because here's the way people are. Just, I just, this is all of us have to admit it. People like to follow people. They like to see a man that they can follow. That's why. That's what happens, right? And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be following a man in that way. Men that you can see and follow, they will lead you astray. That's why he says, look what he says in verse 23. And they'll say to you, look here or look there because it's going to be that bad. He says, don't go after them or do what? Or follow them. Don't go after them or follow them. And here again, Matthew Henry, I liked what he said. Here's how he interpreted what Jesus was telling his disciples. Now, I thought this was good. He says, the days will come, he's telling these disciples, Jesus is saying, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and shall not see it. 
He said, at first, indeed, you will have wonderful success. And Matthew Henry says, and they did. They had thousands were added to the church in a day. But he goes on to think what he thought Jesus was saying here. He says, but do not think it will be always so. Jesus is saying, you guys had great success, but don't think that it was always going to be that way. That's what he's telling him here. He says, no, you will be persecuted and scattered silenced and imprisoned so that you will not have opportunities of preaching the gospel without fear as you now have. And I thought this was interesting. Matthew Henry writing clear back in the 17th century said this, because I see this happening big time. He says, people will grow cool to it when they have enjoyed it a while. They'll grow cool to it when they've enjoyed it for a while. And isn't that what's happening now? They're growing cool to what once they enjoyed and once, once gave him joy and hope. And that's what he said. He says, so that you will not see such harvest of souls gathered into Christ afterwards as at first, nor such multitudes flocking to him as dove, doves to their windows. And I'm saying, that's why I'm preaching this tonight. I'm saying, didn't Jesus say that there's going to be, or Paul say there's going to be a great falling away first before the Antichrist comes? Isn't that what he said? So he's telling what he's saying here in Luke 17 is similar to what he said in Matthew 24. And we know this, but it says he told his disciples in Matthew 24, he says, because, and he's talking about in the end times that we're getting heading straight into, because lawlessness will abound, he said, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that what it says? It's going to be a problem time. And then he goes on to say a little later, he says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And then he adds at the end of that, see, I have told you beforehand. And we're back to where, how, how should we be caught off guard? Like Paul said, Jesus said, I've told you this beforehand. There are going to, the church is going to grow cold because it says iniquity will abound and it is beginning to abound more and more. And it's exerting this great peer pressure on people and causing everybody, there's this more and more and more a temptation to compromise with the world and what you believe and what you want held on to. Isn't there? There is. And that's because of that's why he's saying when that trouble comes and we, we're the persecution, I don't think it's too far off. I don't know. I'm not trying to, you know, you preach a message like this and five years down the road, you're preaching it again. It still applies, though, doesn't it? Don't we still need to be prepared? And that what he's saying. We should still be living like that. So here's why I'm dealing with this rejection. So the rejection that he talks about that he's going to experience in verse 25, he's telling us and telling his disciples that they are going to experience it too. Because here's the thing. When Jesus presented himself to the people as king, how did they respond to him? So you're in Luke 17. All you got to do is just turn over one page to chapter 19. And look, here was their response. Luke 19 and verse 11, it says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God, there it is again, would appear immediately. And therefore he said a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. 
And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And they said that then, and they continue to say it up to this day. That's what the world says. You know, Queen Elizabeth, when she was made queen, this guy, his name's uh, the principal king of arms, George Bellew. They've got the crowd out there. And he asked the audience in each direction of the compass. This is what he would say to him. Sirs, I present unto you Queen Elizabeth, your undoubted queen. Wherefore, all you who are coming this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do that? Pay homage and service to the queen? And the crowd would reply, God save Queen Elizabeth. Every time he said that, that was their reply. To which it says the queen would curtsy in return. So that's what happened when the Queen of England was presented to her subjects. But when the Lord of the universe was presented by Pilate to the people, not just to Jews, all of us, the world. They didn't say, oh, yeah, we'll pay her homage and service. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And that's what happened. He was rejected, in other words. And like I said, that's been the position of the world Ever since, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that's why, if you go back to Luke 17, I think that is one reason why he gives the examples of Noah and Lot. And he says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came, destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, drank, bought, sold, planted, built, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, is what it says. So why does Jesus tie in Noah and Lot? Because here's the thing. Both of them were rejected by the men of their generation, weren't they? And that ties in directly to what is going to happen in these last days. And when they did that, though, what happened? They suffered catastrophic consequences, didn't they? So Noah, we know, was a preacher of righteousness. And what did he offer? He offered to one and all the free offer of God's grace. In other words, I'm sure anyone that wanted to could have entered the ark. Just like today, it's whosoever will. Anyone could have entered the ark with him. But instead, we're talking about rejection. What did they do? They scoffed, they ridiculed, and they rejected his offer. Rejected his offer. Yeah. And Lot, it says, was a righteous man. It says he was vexed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And so it all kind of came to a climax when the day those two angels came and they came to visit Lot and the men of Sodom want him to send them out so they can rape him, rape them. And he said this to them. And he even, I mean, he said it nicely. He said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. And you know what their response to him was? It was the same response this sex-obsessed generation that's coming up says to anyone who tries to warn them of their sin. Here's what they said. And they told Lot, they said, stand back. And then they said, 
This one, speaking of Lot, he came in here to stay. He came to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. That's what this generation says if you say you shouldn't be doing you shouldn't be having gay marriages. You shouldn't be committing fornication, unmarried people sleeping together, all of the things that's going on. And the common thread is, don't let anyone judge you. Don't be my judge. And that's what the men of Sodom said to Lot. Stand back, they said. This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. And they said, now we will deal worse with you than with them. And the angels had to literally, supernaturally intervene, or they would have. Lot would have been in big time trouble. And so that's what the wicked generation will do to the righteous if God allowed. So Noah and Lot were rejected. And the outcome, it says in verse 27 and verse 29, two times, they destroyed them all. That was the consequences to rejecting the Lord. That's what was going on there. So Jesus will be rejected. He's going to be rejected when we present him to the wicked today. And it's saying there will be consequences. But the second thing, he will be revealed in verse 30. Even so it will be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. So he was revealed in his first coming. But (laughs) that veil of flesh, clothed in flesh, his revealing was limited, except for on the Mount of Transfiguration. We only had three people that saw that. But what we're seeing here, though, is, and what he's saying in his second coming, when he returns in his second coming, there is not going to be any veil. He will come in his full glory and majesty. And that's what we have. If you go back up to verse 24, look what it says. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. His glory is going to fill the whole earth. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, like it says, that lightning flash is going to go over the entire earth from one end of heaven unto the other. So it's not going to be like the first time because he's limited to Palestine. He's just a mere man. But when he returns, what do we know that it says? When he returns, Revelation 1-7, every eye will behold him. So when he comes back, it's going to be public and visible and universal. And here's the thing. There will not be one being in the universe that will scoff at that time. They did the first time and they rejected it, but not the second time because it is written in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those under the earth and that every tongue should, conf- excuse me, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's going to be revealed as Lord of all the earth when he comes back the second time. There won't be any doubt about it. Everyone will, quote-unquote, get it at that time. But the second thing is he's going to be revealed as the judge of all the earth. So when it says, But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And he says, even so, just like that, he's saying, verse 30, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So here's... The significance of that, the people of Noah's day, the people of Lot's day, they had no concern for the Lord and his warnings that were given through those two men. They just brazenly continued on in their sins because it didn't seem like there was going to be any consequences. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and it says, and others, whatever that would mean. They bought, they sold, they planted, they built. The sun was shining, their bills were paid, everything seemed Great. And they were oblivious. 
thought that's going to go on forever. And so they excused God from their lives, didn't they? Excused him from their lives. And Noah's warning fell on deaf ears. So it would seem like there was no thunder before the lightning. But really there was thunder. There was thunder for 120 years. God's voice was speaking through that man, Noah. It's just they had become hardened and they tuned it out and they couldn't hear it anymore. And so this man Edward says this, people were just simply too busy to take the kingdom of God seriously. Only the vigilant few who were prepared for the impending catastrophe were saved. I mean, we need to give serious heed to what I just said. People were simply too busy to take the kingdom of God seriously. Only the vigilant few who were prepared for the impending catastrophe were saved. And so we need to let the thunder of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words that we've read in this text, we need to let his voice there be the thunder to us today before the lightning comes. We've been clearly warned, haven't we? I mean, it's... It's not my voice. It's his voice. Just reading the scripture. We could have stopped after we read the end of that chapter. And we've been sufficiently warned. So what are verses 31 and 32 telling us? Saying this, where he says that in that day he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who was in the field, let him not turn back. And the second shortest verse in the Bible, remember Lot's wife. And what's it telling us there? It says we had better realize that building a life in this world, accumulating and prizing possessions will do what? What's it telling us there? Remember Lot's wife? It'll bring disaster in the end. So listen, if the Lord's speaking to you in whatever way about you need to give up this goal in your life that's going to bring you this monetary security, but it's taking you away from the word, you need to think about what's being said there. That's what he's saying. Because that's where her heart was. Obey him and let him provide. And so we see that turn back a few chapters in Luke 12. This is exactly what he's saying back here in Luke 12. And we've got to make a lot of decisions like this through life. Look what it says in Luke 12, 29. He says, Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nation of the world seek after. And your father knows you have need of these things. He says, But seek the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. And I always like this verse 32. It's a great verse. Do not fear little flock. Well, we definitely are there. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. He wants to do it. So we don't have to fear little flock. He says, sell what you have and give alms. You don't have to worry about, you got to hold on to stuff. That's what he was telling Lot's wife. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief can approach nor moth destroys. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where do you think Lot's wife's treasure was? He goes on to say, let your waist be girded, your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. You've got to be so ready that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him Immediately, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, 
you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's what happened to Sodom. That's what happened to the world in Noah's day. It all happened at a time they didn't expect it, right? So our treasure needs to be in heaven. And then when it's there, that's why we've been talking about our new identity, then our heart's going to be there also. So go back to that chapter uh, 17 in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Here's the issue with her. She'd never settled the issue of where her affections were. That was her problem, right? So here's the thing. You think about it. Fire and brimstone is falling on Sodom. Why should she care any more about Sodom? It is all over there. But here's why. It's because her affections and her heart were there. And all she can think about when she looks back is what might have been my comfortable bed, my comfortable couch, my newly remodeled kitchen. That's all she could think. So she'd never given her heart to the king or his promised kingdom. And her heart was still in Sodom. And there, so there was no joy for her in being delivered out of it. She still desired it. And that should be the sign of a Christian. You should be, there should be joy that you were delivered out of the world. And out of the destruction that's coming there, like we talked about in Pilgrim's Progress. And he's given us two warnings here, our Lord is. He's saying, through all this, don't be indifferent to the kingdom of God because of worldly pursuits. Don't let worldly pursuits make you indifferent to the kingdom of God. But the opposite should also be true. You should be indifferent to the things of the world because of your love and desire to obtain the kingdom of God. They should both be true. And we were having a conversation over Daryl's the other night. And the question was, you know, uh, you know what, what's the difference between now and then and your generation, our generation type thing? And, you know, <laughs> I, I agreed with what Daryl said. It's not that we didn't. I mean, you know, sometimes I thought my dad thought my son's become a complete idiot. He doesn't know about getting loans, how to get a good job, how to make money. I'm trying to say, Dad, it's not that I don't know how to do all that, and I don't know how to, wouldn't know how to play the system and all that. I don't care. And I'm not going to put all my time, money, and energy or whatever into just making myself somebody in this world. At one time, that was my goal. I just literally didn't have that desire. And I was going to take my time and to do other things, right? And I'm saying back then, our walk was tighter, and we were much happier. There's a lot more joy there. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, This I say, brethren, the time is short. Amen. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. So my question would be, what is Paul saying there? Is he saying you can't buy anything, you can't go fishing, you can't cry at a funeral or rejoice at a wedding? I mean, I don't think he's obviously, he's not saying that. But what he's saying is we need to prioritize our lives with the understanding that this world and all that is about it is going to be judged and it is passing away. And when we stand before God, it's like like Lot's wife. She's so worried about what's happening back there with all of her stuff 
in that city, in that place she wanted to be, there was going to be none of it left. And all she did was end up as a pillar of salt, which Josephus said he actually saw it. And you go down to the, <laughs> the Dead Sea, and they've got pillars there that they put a sign, this is Lot's wife, whatever. <laughs> but here's the thing. Seriously, though, what will any of it matter? Read Ecclesiastes. So Paul was saying, and I think Jesus is saying, that we need to grip the things of the world lightly because we have so much of Jesus on our hand, we can't grip them tightly. So he's, Paul's not obviously saying it's a sin to get married, it's a sin to buy. He's not saying that. He's saying don't make that like your overriding priority. Like with Martha. He's saying Mary's taken the one thing and made it her priority. You think Mary never helped Martha out from there on out? All she did was read her Bible. She never did any housework. I don't think so. He's saying at this time, that was the time. To, I'm here speaking. This is the time to make this your priority. Martha, and he's saying what she did in doing that will never be taken away from her. And I think that's as simple as it is here. And so look what he goes on to say in verses 32. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it remember lot's wife here's the thing we need to remember she was lot's wife and she was the wife of a just man she was involved intimately with a family that was very godly abraham was his uncle she would have been around him she traveled down to egypt so she's with them she's with this godly family in intimately connected one flesh with lot he they had to get along he loved her he didn't leave her behind it wasn't like hey this is my opportunity i'll get rid of her i'll leave her there no he took her with her but here's the point is closeness to a saint whether it's a mate a friend a mother a father does not guarantee salvation does it and that's what we have here look in verse 34 he says i tell you that night there's going to be two men in one bed and it's not what it means. Back then, they didn't have 13 bedrooms, so sometimes you'd have a dad and a son or brothers in bed, nothing going on there. But he says, what's going to happen is one of them's going to be taken, the other will be left. Two women, they'll be grinding together. Hey, they look exactly alike, like the virgins. But one is going to be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field working, painting the house. The one is going to be taken, and he's saying the other is going to be left. Closeness does not guarantee salvation. Doesn't guarantee the same end, does it? Because God is going to be judging all of us on what? Our hearts. That's what he's going to be judging us on. And the other thing is, remember Lot's wife. We have to remember she was delivered out of Sodom, and yet she still perished. So outwardly she seemed to obey, but her heart was still in Sodom. And the other thing is, her problem was she didn't deal with sin in her heart. Because she was rebellious. Because the command, if you go back and read Genesis, was escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. She was warned by God not to look back and did it anyways. And Jesus warned us, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So that's the point of that is, if we need to make a correction, we need to make a correction. We're looking back on our former life and thinking, man, 
things seemed easier then, or we're looking back at the way people interpret Scripture, and boy, that seems easier then. Maybe we were wrong. I'm saying that's what he's warning us about here. Given as many clear commands, and we need to hold fast to what we know and have proven. Because the deception comes from those that did not have a love of the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's where the grand deception is going to come. So what I want to end, though, on this note, positive note. On the other hand, when you look at this situation with Noah and Lot, he took care, we know this, he took care of those that were his, those that trusted his word and obeyed, because Noah was spared and his family. Now, that wasn't like Noah had something special, because the only reason he was able to do that is it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he entered into that ark when that happened, and he obeyed. That was all the grace of God, and he was safe. And we taught that if God, you know if he's began a work of grace in you, if he's done that, he will bring it to completion just like Noah's ark. So we have a responsibility. We have to obey, obey, but we don't have to sit here and live in fear that we're going to be judged with the world. We just got to obey the Lord. If you're not doing that, tonight's a good time to begin, isn't it? It's still not too late. And Lot was taken out of Sodom, delivered from destruction. He was safe. Now, he wasn't quite as godly, I wouldn't say, as Abraham, by where he chose to live and kind of suffered the consequences. But yet, nonetheless, even Lot, God loved him. Here's what we need to see. Just because some are not going to heed the warning, some didn't then, to those of us who will heed the warning, to those that will heed the warning that Jesus gave. God will continue to show his great love and mercy, and he will deliver us from the snare of the fowler, whether it's present circumstances or those that are to come. That's what I see here. Amen? Because God's faithful. Amen. So the warning is just to help us out. We don't want to be caught unawares. We don't want to be caught with the world. We don't want to be caught with others. We want to be where God wants us to be, obeying his voice like the ones, the, the, ones, the 144,000 in Revelation 14. Follow the lamb whithersoever he goes. Start learning to, to know he's inside of me. He's directing me. He's going to be directing me according to his word, to obey his word. That voice that speaks to you is not going to be out of line with this, having you do weird things. But he will be speaking, directing And that's what we need to start learning, how to walk with the Lord, because he's walking with us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And he'll see us through. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again, Lord, for your clear uh, word that you've given us, the warning that you've given us, and that we just pray, Lord, that all of us here be counted worthy to escape those things that are coming, Lord, and that we'll be prepared. We won't get caught up into things of the world, and we'll be reminded of that, Lord, on a daily basis. And we'll give priority to the things that you give priority to in seeking your kingdom. Our prayer life, our reading the word, communing with you, singing in our hearts to you, Lord. I just ask you'll help all of us in that way, Lord, and that your grace and mercy will be poured out on all of us here today. And I just thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.